Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Holly Ingram, who is Professor of Cellular Molecular Pharmacology at UCSF. Her research focuses on the basic science of hormones and nerves in female physiology, aimed at improving women's health. Welcome, Holly. Oh, thank you. Yeah, first of all, congratulations to UCSF and uh, David Julius for the recent Nobel Prize. How does yes. it feel uh, to have a Nobel laureate in uh, in the household? Oh, it's, it's it's quite exciting, but somewhat stressful because we're getting ready for the Nobel experience on December eighth. So, uh, <laughs> lots so, of lots of planning that must go on before that event. Lots of planning, and I guess he has to give a talk, right? Yes, yes, he's 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 sort of angsting over that, but I think it will be just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, so I went to your website, um, and your research uh, has three focus areas. Uh, the first one you say is we want to understand why estrogen signaling in the brain profoundly increases bone mass, uh, and you have a paper around this. You say central estrogen signaling coordinates energy expenditure, reproduction, and in concert with peripheral estrogen. impacts skeletal homeostasis in females um so this is i mean it's just a really interesting thing uh, so the brain is sort of mediating a bone density um and bone frailty and osteoporosis is a big problem as females age right so so what what are you finding here okay well so i mean you bring up a good point so it it turns out that um while women are living longer we're not aging as well uh and and that's because if you think about it like a disease like osteoporosis many more women are afflict are affected by osteoporosis than men many many more so um that that's a really prime example of the fact that 
we, while we are living longer, we're not living as healthy as men because of something like osteoporosis. And then there's there's other um, other issues as well. So um, we we have when we started out this project, we didn't set out to work in the bone. That was really by accident. It was a very um, accidental discovery when we were manipulating estrogen signaling in the brain. And we happened to have looked at these animals in what they call a DEXA machine. And they actually use this in the clinics. Like you'll go in and get your, for a lot of older women or even mid, mid, um, not mid-career, but, you know, middle-aged women will go and have uh, that a DEXA scan to look at their bone density. And so we, we do that in mice. Really, we weren't really trying to get the bone density. We were really looking at the fat and lean mass. So um, then we discovered that if we had we went in and we manipulated, we got rid of estrogen signaling in a certain part of the brain that we got this increase, this really wild increase in bone density that was then, uh, in, not only were these bones dense, but they were much, much stronger as well. So, so what's sort of the evolutionary basis for this? So, so the brain is doing something Mm-hmm. Potentially for the sake of some beneficial effects, uh, but but the, here it is actually creating a problem for the body, right? So 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 what's the connection? Well, I think you need to think about the brain as really the gatekeeper of how females are going to allocate their energy and where 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 they're going to where are they going to put their resources? And for a female versus a male, they have to make the decision. Uh, especially if they're pregnant and there's offspring involved, is are you going to put your energies energy into offspring or uh, are you going to put it into yourself? And so if you think about this, the, the, the uh, brain is really coordinating. It's, it's almost like a controller of the power grid is what we call it for the female. And so... Uh, we, I think it does make sense that you're going to, you're going to want to control how much bone formation you're, you're going to have at a particular time, because you're, you're thinking about controlling other things. Like, are you going to control movement for mating? Are you going to control energy going to your offspring? Are you going to control energy or fuel going to bone formation, which is bone formation is energetically costly. So you have to make this decision. The brain has to sort of make this decision about where they're going to put, where are you going to put your energy? And so that is why we think this, this major axis or pathway exists between brain and bone. And, you know, others have suggested that this this might exist. Um, uh, I think that our study really showed that it exists in a really big way, that manipulating brain, the signaling in the brain can really have a dramatic impact on bone and bone formation. So, so there is an energy budget. There's a resource constraint. And, uh, and clearly creating bones 
E equal to MC squared. <laughs> Anything that creates uh, uh, creates mass takes a lot of energy. Yes. Um, but then um, the osteoporosis issues that we observe in modern human kicks in much later than child childbearing um, timeline, right? Right. Um, and so by then, um, is this energy optimization? Is it sort of doing things uh, because of habit <laughs> that it hasn't really reverted back to what might be optimal? Well, I mean, I sort of what you're asking is why why when women age does the rate of uh, prevalence of osteoporosis goes up? And it's sort of it it has been generally thought that that's because you you undergo estrogen depletion. So at a peripheral level, estrogen seems to be really important for bone maintenance as well. And um, you can sort of think of peripheral estrogen being opposed by what's going on in the brain. And we think that this circuit in the brain probably kicks in much earlier during the prepubertal growth um, versus the loss of estrogen, peripheral estrogen later in life is important for bone maintenance. So it, I think, you know, you have to, when you're thinking about all of this, you have to think of different life stages and what's going on. And there, you know, you can't ever look at just one event and just map it to one life stage. You have to really be thinking about it over a timeline, if that makes sense. Right, right. So, so do you see some sort of a therapeutic intervention here? Um, if you go back and sort of retune the signaling process, could you restart bone formation? So that is, of course, the hope because we've definitely uncovered a novel pathway in terms of bone formation. And right now we're, we're finishing up a study that suggests very much that this is some sort of circulatory hormone or factor that is causing this bone formation. And we are uh, desperately trying to figure out what that is through different methods. But I think because we, our data do indicate that it's a circulating factor, there's some promise there that if we identify that factor, and it's unknown or nobody has really thought about it in this respect when it comes to bone, that, you know, it might be useful for a therapeutic strategy. But of course, you know, we're dealing with preclinical models. And I think it's always, um, it's, it's not wise for a scientist in a preclinical model to get out on a limb too far. <laughs> But that would, of course, be the hope that our research would somehow someday lead to better treatments for osteoporosis. And right now, I mean, the, the treatments are somewhat limited and they have a limited time shelf, they, they limited uh, shelf life. Is. So that has been one of the big issues because the body is really good at any time you perturb the system there's compensatory events that occur. And that's really been sort of this problem with any manipulation 
that our current manipulations in terms of trying to treat osteoporosis is that they do really well for a while. And then you have these compensatory mechanisms coming in that limit the, the effective uh, shelf life of some of these treatments. And obviously from a therapy perspective, side effects or uh, unforeseeable side effects <laughs> always a problem. That's always um, a problem. That's always a problem. Uh, so the mice models, um, have we been able to successfully um, do this? Uh, with what? Uh, so in, in the mice models that, that you talked about, um, really sort of uh, retuning uh, estrogen signals, um, mice have been able to build back up bones? Oh. Well, I think so. We've done one experiment that's quite interesting where we've taken a re really old bones from uh, females that are the equivalent of a 65-year-old. I mean, that's not so old today, but um, the bones have really gone way down in their bone mass. So they really are aged bones. And we've been able to put them back into these mutant mice um, and stitch them really on in the back. We, we implant them in their back and we, we build those bones back up. So clearly we have something that is building bone back up. And the other thing that we're looking at, of course, is how um, dietary excess like high fat diet how it might affect this phenotype does it interfere with this phenotype and if so how do you see other models so uh, i don't know what the what the next preclinical model might be uh, dog or uh, do you do you foresee anything going in that direction no. i know. <laughs> no we have enough on our <laughs> we we have enough to do with mice, so that will be left for some other lab in some other place like UC Davis that works on dogs. You know, that that would be the perfect project for them. And uh, I, I do think that taking one's science into other models is great, but I won't be doing it. It sounds very promising, though. Um... As, as this problem is, is really exponentially increasing as people are living longer. Yes. And it affects quality of life significantly. Um, my mom has this problem, so I can, <laughs> from experience, yeah. uh, see uh, the issues related to this. Um, so you have another area, research area. You say we recently explained how surges in estrogen prior to peak sexual receptivity increase physical activity in females. Um, so you mentioned estrogen depletion in rodents and humans leads to inactivity, fat accumulation, and diabetes, underscoring the conserved metabolic benefits of estrogen that inevitably decrease with age. Um, activity is also related to bone density, right? Yes. So this is another sort of, this is another circuit, right? Uh, you call this MC4R signaling? Yes. It's sort of, it's. It's basically uh, the convergence of two hormonal signaling systems, the melanocortin signaling and estrogen signaling that converge on uh, about 200 neurons in the mouse brain to then cause this um, 
basically when those neurons are activated and when the signaling pathway is activated, the melanocortin-4 signaling pathway is activated, activity uh, occurs, in, an increase in activity occurs. It's sort of like aging, isn't it? Uh, These the circuits is basically, I don't know if the right term, but sh uh, sort of shutting down less activity, less bone density. It's sort of an aging process going it, on, right? It's very much an aging process. And so, um, you, I mean, both of these projects really, their, their primary ingredient, of course, is estrogen and looking at what, you know, just understanding how estrogen is really functioning in the brain on in different brain regions on different subsets of neurons is a really, um, it's, it's challenging, but so interesting to think about. Um, and I do, we, we really know very, very little at this point, I would say. We, we've understood for many decades that estrogen affects brain function and cognition and neuronal activity. Uh, but we don't know how. We really haven't gotten down to the nitty-gritty of understanding that. And um, I think that our latest paper uh, starts providing a molecular roadmap to understanding how estrogen is, you know, how it's executing its function in those particular neurons. Of course, there's many other neurons and neur neuronal clusters that are affected by estrogen and we we have yet to really delve into to those areas and because this this study took about four years i i don't think that we're <laughs> we'll be looking at a few more but we're not going to be looking at 10 more <laughs> so you know there's a lot of talk um about reversing the aging process you know, we, uh, you know, people think that in 20, 30 years, we will find out how to live forever. Um, and so, so this idea of reversing signs of aging is, is quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, it could have other applications um, in addition to this. Well, I, I think... Um... I mean, aging is such a huge topic, right? And there's so many diseases of aging. Uh, and you do think about, you know, that when everybody thinks about aging, they think about things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia, right? Which are really insidious diseases that um, we, don't, we don't really understand. We don't have a handle on in terms of any therapeutics. So, um, our studies to look at essentially we're asking how does estrogen keep everything great and young and right and going as it should be um and so we're we're sort of looking at the we're, we're taking an op an approach that's quite diametrically opposed to for instance studying alzheimer's disease because we're saying okay what is it about estrogen that is helping to maintain a youthful uh, state, and we think that by by approaching that and understanding what estrogen is doing, we may come up with some pathways that intersect with the aging process. 
and definitely, uh, you know, what's happening when estrogen goes offline. And, you know, this is not just an issue of aging, for instance, um, to give you, you know, there's millions of breast cancer survivors that have to go through what we call premature menopause because they have to go on these anti-estrogen drugs. And when they do that, they're not going on them for six months. They're going on them for five to 10 years, usually right at a time when, so perhaps at the age of 40, when they have breast cancer, they're put on these drugs and essentially put into premature menopause a decade earlier than they might start going through menopause in 47, but it's really like about 52 to 53 that you you have full-on menopause. So there's a whole 10 years for those women that they've, they're losing the benefit of estrogen and they're losing that for their metabolism. They're losing that for brain cognition. They're losing that for their bones. So all of these, this is a huge, huge population that we're talking about. So what is motivating a lot of our research is to try to find out can we figure out what estrogen is doing in the brain to give this these beneficial effects? And if we understand that at a granular level, maybe we can come up with new ways to bypass estrogen and then get the therapeutic or the beneficial effects of estrogen without um, having to give estrogen itself. Yeah, so the the aging, uh, it all goes back to the brain, both in terms of cognition as well as physical strength. Um, so it is sort of interesting. They say you are as old as you think you are. <laughs> it's the brain that determines your age, really, not your body. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Some, I don't know if I would... Some people would disagree with that, right? Because if your li ligaments and your joints give out, you can have a brain that wants to move, but can't. You have a body that can't move. So they're pretty interconnected, I would say. You, your brain is really important for motivating you to do things like move, but you do have to have a skeleton in place that allows you to move and muscles that allow you to move. Right. So in this, uh, in in the mice experiment here, you you have been able to actually create activity in older mice by by triggering something in the brain. We are. We. I mean, it's this was a an experiment that we did in collaboration with Nadava Two's lab, where we actually go in and we do gene editing in those neurons to increase the dosage of melanocortin-4 receptor. So essentially what we're allowing those neurons to do is uh, produce more of this receptor so that they that's going to, once the ligand comes along, that then that by having more receptors on those neurons, it, those neurons can do their thing. And so we were able to really, it was somewhat remarkable that we took fairly old female mice and we went in and we did this gene editing and we were able to sustain increased activity 
four months after we did the initial injection. So it's, it's really quite a long-term effect. Um, now, whether you could ever use gene editing in the human brain to get the same effects, I think is, is sort of sci-fi stuff right now. But Nadav has really thought about this carefully because he does think that for some diseases that where we know that there's not enough dosage of a particular gene and that causes a disorder, it is an in, an, a very interesting idea to think about using gene editing to increase that dosage, you know, permanently or semi-permanently mm-hmm. to, to, rescue a, um, to rescue the deficiency of a gene. Yeah, so four months of increased activity in older female mice, what did it do to their lifespan? Was there any difference? We, we didn't, we we did not age them. Uh, we we needed to get those mice to finish this study, and we did find that their their cortical bones were thickened because of increased activity. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, they did not lose the weight that we might have expected. Uh, right, that because you know the 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 idea of body weight is that you it's what's coming in in terms of food and what's going out in terms of energy expenditure and one way you burn off you burn energy is of course through movement so we would have expected that their body weight would have dropped um, but it it really did not and that's because they eat a little bit more every day Um, so mice are just you know, that's one of the beautiful things about mice is their homeostatic systems are really robust so that they don't get fat and they don't get skinny. They they maintain their weight, um, unlike humans, which tend to get obese. Um, so they... They're move. They you know they know they're moving around a little bit more every day, and and so they offset that by eating a little bit more food every day. Um, so, it it I think that underscores what some human, uh, some scientists who have studied human metabolism have known for quite some time is that it's very difficult to just lose weight by moving around more. And that has to be coupled with some sort of restrictive diet. Um, but there are a lot of other benefits with exercise in your brain, your cardiovascular system, your bone. So it's not all about your weight and your appearance. It's also about your internal workings and if those are functioning at a, at a higher level. Yeah, this has been a little bit of a myth, right? You have to stop eating to to lose weight. <laughs> um, and so many of the weight loss programs uh, that, that sort of focus on exercise and uh, high levels of activity never seem to work. Um, yeah. for that's because people, yeah. people start eating more. <laughs> and so, yes, it it's nevertheless, I, I would I would just suspect that those individuals are healthier than individuals that don't exercise. Right, right. So so you have a third research area here. Um, 
You say we wish to determine whether gut-brain signaling pathways exhibit sex-specific differences. Uh, an important question that uh, that may relate to the higher prevalence of intestinal visceral pain syndromes experienced by women. Uh, I don't know if this is related, um, Holly. You have another. You have a paper. LRH1 mitigates intestinal inflammatory disease by maintaining epithelial homeostasis uh, stasis and uh, cell survival. Is that related to this this area? Well. Um... This, there's another paper that, uh, that we have actually that I published with my husband because he works on visceral pain and we, um, I had a, um, a pediatric GI fellow come to the lab and he wanted to work on hormone signaling in the gut and nuclear hormone signaling in the gut. And so he really helped start this project in the lab. And now he started his own lab uh, at UCSF, which is great. And we're all three of us, uh, including a group in Australia, we work as a consortium uh, that's funded by these U01 mechanisms out of NIH that that are, um, it's the, um, oh, I'm forgetting the, the acronym, but it's basically to look at pain and addiction it just mechanisms of pain, visceral pain, uh, because visceral pain, uh, visceral pain as well as pain in general is one of the big motivators for opioid addiction. So um, we uh, have this grant to try to understand the, the connection between the gut epithelium and the nerves in terms of pain and that signaling. And so one of the reasons that that um, I became interested in this is because we know that there's a, a large sex difference in irritable bowel syndrome with about three times more women. Uh, it's, a, it's like a three to one ratio almost with more women experiencing that the syndrome than men. And we really don't understand very much about it. Uh, we just know that there is this, it's a really large sex bias for females suffering from this disorder. So we became interested um, in, you know, trying to understand to see if estrogen signaling was in the gut, where it was, in what part of the gut, and if that might be contributing to um, this in heightened visceral pain in females, whether we could model that in a mouse. And so those studies are just really beginning, but it, I think um, it's showing up that there, there are these regions in the gut where you, you get this pronounced estrogen signaling that's seen in females and not males. And so we're going in now and looking to see if you uh, promote that estrogen signaling by giving them uh, estradiol, what happens to that brain-gut uh, connection using, using a mouse model. Right. Uh, there, there, there's a lot, to, you know, so the microbiome, is it involved in any way? Yeah, we don't, we don't know, but that's an interesting thing. I, 
I think, I mean, I do know other groups are looking at this, trying to understand if estrogen does affect the, the microbiome. And, um, you know, if you think about this disease, you would say, well, why do females, why, why would it be, why do females suffer more from IBS than males? And so one of the ideas is that there's this evolutionary trade-off in which, you know, females are going to sense something when they eat it, they're going to have pain and maybe change their behavior, their ingestive behaviors accordingly. Whereas if it, if males don't have this heightened awareness, then they would eat various things and, um, it, there would be no consequences, no behavioral consequences, but males have a much higher rate of uh, colon cancer. And so it could be that this heightened awareness or that heightened sensitivity in females is protective for against colon cancer. And in males don't have that and they have an increased prevalence and risk for colon cancer. It's it's just like the opposite, right? You have this trade-off. Yeah, it sounds to me, Holly, that nature wanted to protect women because they are the ones who are making kids, so to speak. Uh, and it's sort of a resource optimization problem for nature too. So you let men eat anything they want <laughs> and you know, let, let women be more... Uh, more discerning uh, about what they eat. You know, that's we have another study where we're looking at this evolutionary trade-off between um, how fat gets stored in the liver versus uh, susceptibility to infection. And again, it's sort of this, it's really remarkable because you have this huge difference between males and females where, and this, I'm talking about mice now, I'm not talking about humans where mice, uh, female mice, succumb to an infection but don't develop fatty liver, and it's just the opposite for males. So I do think this, um, you know, looking at some of this physiology in terms of evolution and why you would have this evolutionary trade-off lead to these sex-biased diseases is really a very, it's, it's really been fun to think about. I, all, I got started on thinking about this because my son had to take a biological anthropology and he had this book by, Lieb, I think his name is Lieberman, um, and I started reading it. It was so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, makes so things makes you think about things in a different light. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of information there. I mean, it's just, we have been around only for 200,000 years, so what happened 200,000 to 500,000 years uh, tells us, I mean, a lot of this could have been mistakes, right? So nature trying to optimize evolution, random mutation, okay. and you get selected for something and you picked up a bunch of, you know, other bad stuff along with it. Um, but it's it's always interesting. So, so I want to ask you in conclusion, maybe speculate a bit, uh, Holly. I know that you don't want to go into human models yet, but uh, do you see in the very um, into into long time into the future, uh, we might end up with some sort of um, estrogen pump, uh, you know, just like insulin pump, and we can program it to optimally release 
estrogen to different parts of the body, something along those lines? That's an interesting question. I mean, right now, of course, you have hormone replacement therapy, and there's that comes in all different forms. You can take oral medication. You can have patches, skin patches. Um, you can have, uh, you know, it, 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 I'll, I'll just say it comes in different forms. And so I, I think that's a really interesting idea. Could you target hormone signaling to just one specific tissue to give you the advantage that you need and not affect other tissues that might um, have this proliferative response to estrogen, such as breast tissue or the uterus, um, in, in which case, you know, there would be this potential for increased cancer in some women. I would say some women. I don't, this idea that hormone replacement therapy is going to cause cancer in all women is really, it's really, that's a really old notion. <laughs> and it's, it's based on a study that, you know, a 20 year old study that was somewhat controversial and somewhat flawed. Um, and so I do feel that, uh, re-engaging in this conversation about reasonable hormone replacement therapy for women as they age and even men is it's not an unreasonable conversation to have um, so but you know getting estrogen into a certain part of the brain versus <laughs> you know maybe medicinal chemists can can start figuring this out like how to I mean, this is, you know, this is what uh, drug delivery folks are thinking about is how do you deliver drugs to just uh, certain cells? <clears throat> you know, this, it's not, un, you know, I think that could be the future, right? You could target to certain, certain parts of the body and specifically certain cell types. Yeah, this seems like it's one of those things that if you have very good targeting, you can get very good results because it has a lot of uh, countervailing effects in different parts of the body, right? And so is this research, Holly, very much in the academic setting? Uh, are pharmaceutical companies really taken this up in any way? Well, it, it will be interesting to see what emerges from pharmaceutical companies. Uh, right now, all pharmaceutical companies are really just focused on how do you create an anti-estrogen so that you prevent breast cancer, so that you use it in hormone-dependent breast cancer. And the same thing is true for prostate cancer, you know, for hormone-dependent prostate cancer. So the, the main focus for pharmaceutical companies has really been cancer. And I, you know, so the question is, is can they, can their mindset change so that they start thinking about hormones and the effects of hormones as drugs for aging? And, I mean, because really that's what we're talking about here. And it will be interesting to see if there's a a change in the viewpoint from drug companies, because I think prior to the nurse's study uh, that suggested that hormone replacement therapy was bad, the pharmaceutical companies were going full, you know, mm. full throttles ahead on 
hormone and hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy. And then that just completely shut down all of those programs. Really, I mean, almost overnight. It was, it was to me, it was such a rash uh, decision, but I think they all, everybody worried about the effects. So they didn't want to be, you know, there's a lot of financial ramifications around that space. Um, but I do wonder as we start thinking about aging, whether there's going to be this resurgence in thinking about the use of hormones as anti-aging therapies. Um, and that's already happening. I mean, people, you know, women are going in and saying, you're going to give me hormone because I really can't think without hormones. So this is already happening at some level. Yeah. And it's that's sort of a, men, <laughs> men go in and ask for growth hormone and, and yeah. antigens as well. So, you know, it's, it's a bit for the, for the individual, it's sort of a risk management question. Uh, we know that there are some beneficial effects. We know that there might be some negative effects. So where you are in terms of in your life and I would imagine a lot of the family history. So, you know, increasingly we are talking about personalized medicine, right? So if you really look at the individual mm-hmm. more deeply, perhaps we can come up with a with an intervention that is custom tailored for that individual. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that you really, I think in this scenario, it really applies because as I said, when that nurse's study came out, it was basically one one shoe fits everybody. Basically, we're going to not let you have any hormone replacement therapy. And that's just not, you know, that's not accurate. That's not, not at all how we think about medicine today in terms of what you're talking about, which is personalized medicine. So I think as we learn more, we will understand who could be able to take hormone replacement therapy and who shouldn't be taking hormone replacement therapy. Or if we figure out other pathways that bypass estrogen, what individuals should be thinking about that sort of strategy? So we, we have a lot to learn before we get there, but I do think that I agree thinking into the future, it's exactly that sort of stratification that one needs in order to deliver the best care for people. Excellent, yeah, this is fascinating research, Carly. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.